following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. If you've got a Bible, maybe you could uh, turn with me. We're in the book of John. We're going to be uh, actually in chapter 18 all the way through to some of 19. If you haven't, the word should be on the... Uh, on the screen. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out and asked them, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus said, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus said, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, reported Pilate. With this, he went out to them again, to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your, your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to, know that, to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. 
Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And that's the word of the Lord this morning. Um, happy message today. When I was preparing for this message, I was reminded of, um, of three incidents. The first was a, um, a friend sharing a story about a family going through some really difficult times, uh, both husband and wife facing life-threatening illnesses. And uh, you know, they were wondering, where is God in all of this? How can God allow uh, two good people in the church to suffer like this? Uh, it was a difficult story to hear. Um, the second situation I was just reminded of was, was I, I came across this book um, a few years ago, and the story just reminded me of that book. It's a book written by a guy called um, Bart Ehrman. Some of you might be familiar with him, but for those who don't know, he is a uh, once Christian, now atheist, uh, who walked away from the faith. He's a professor of religious studies at a university. He now writes prolifically about why we can't trust the Bible and, and how we should walk away from Christianity. So don't go out and read any of his books. I wouldn't recommend them for obvious reasons. But um, what was really interesting was the title of this book that he'd written. It's called God's Problem and how the Bible fails to answer our most important question, why we suffer. I thought that was interesting because, you know, for me, I, I would think the most pressing question of human existence is why are we here? Why do we suffer? Seems to take that one for granted, kind of presupposing that question. So I thought maybe, maybe for many people it's the reality of evil, of suffering, of death, of, of pain and hurt in the world that drives us to ask, where's God in all of this? The last situation I was uh, reminded of while preparing was the uh, situation in the Middle East, um, not solely between Israel and, and Palestine, which I guess has been going on for, for many years, but now more recently we've seen in Iraq that Christians are being actively hunted and murdered for their refusal to convert to Islam. Yeah, I think the initial statement from ISIS was, you know, pay a tax for being a Christian in our country. Oh gosh, I don't like taxes in the best of times. Um, convert to Islam or die. So uh, pretty horrific choices. And then they very quickly removed the tax option. It was either convert or die. So, you know, as I, as I read this story, it, it just reminded me that our world is, is a beautiful place. It's lovely. I, I love living in this world. It's, it's filled with the beauty and majesty of God, but it's also fraught with turmoil. It's also far from perfect. And this story has just given me time to really consider what does it mean for me to actually have faith in Jesus? What does it mean to say I love God? So as I was reading this passage with those stories in the back of my mind, I'm really struck by how unjust the story is. This isn't one of those nice Bible stories where Jesus feeds the 5,000, um, doesn't raise anybody from the dead. It's, it's a horrible, horrible story. It's a miscarriage of justice. Um, you know, it's a showcase of human beings at their absolute worst. It's not a nice Bible story. I think when you read a story like this, you're supposed to feel a little bit of that righteous anger. This is not how things are supposed to be. So what's going on in the story? It all takes place in the shadow of the Passover, that uh, festival that was meant to celebrate the Exodus. It's a time when God acted to free Israel from their slavery to Egypt and uh, through God's actions, Israel became a free nation, one nation under God, if you like. You know, they didn't have to fight to be free. They didn't have to defeat an army. They didn't have to go and pull any political maneuvers. They didn't have to blackmail anybody. They didn't even have to make a foreign alliance with another neighbor. 
all they had to do, literally, was paint the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts and eat the Passover meal in their houses. God would do everything to act to free them. And this was the central story in Israel's life. The story they looked back to to say, who are we as a people? We are the one people God has freed from their slavery to Egypt. When the times were good, that's where the identity came from. When the times were bad, they looked back to the story and said, if this is the way God acted in the past, he will act this way again. He will bring a new exodus to free us from our slavery. Then you get to Jesus' day in this story. And you see that it's like Israel's gone backwards. They've regressed, gone back into slavery. It's almost like they're back in square one in Egypt. The story's case in point, I think, because here you've got the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people pleading with Pilate, a pagan, foreigner, stranger, an outsider to the covenant. They're pleading with him, please enforce God's law here. Bit of a strange turn of events. This isn't like Moses before Pharaoh saying, let my people go. The Lord your God commands you. No, this is more like we've seen in dirty politics, really. This is backdoor deals. This is blackmail. This is political maneuvering and positioning to get what you want. Because the story ends really with, we have no king but Caesar. Surely they didn't mean that one, right? Surely they meant no king but God. The Maccabean martyrs had gone 400 years before Jesus to their death with that very phrase, we have no king but God. How ironic that one festival designed to celebrate the universal kingship of God over the world is turned into a farce before it even begins by the leadership of Israel. And in many ways, it seems like the Jewish leaders have done what a lot of people today do. Uh, They say, well, look, you know, that faith might have worked for your parents or your grandparents. They were not as sophisticated as us. We know what really works. We know how the world really works. And that story is a bit old. It's a bit outdated. It's a bit archaic. You know, people might have just believed all sorts of things like that, but we're a lot smarter now. So the real way to power is to throw your lot in with these Romans. That's how you're going to get things done. Now, I think at this point, it's easy to kind of short-circuit the story and say, all right, well then clearly the story is about the dangers of practical atheism. Like the Jewish leaders, we may believe God exists, but we live like he doesn't. And then the application of the story is really simple. Okay, Jesus trusted God, so be like Jesus. And we we often short-circuit the story that way. Bear in mind, I think there is a real danger with so-called practical atheism. We can easily be seduced into going along with the mood and feel of our culture. And and we need to be on our guard against a cold and sterile faith. It's got nothing to do with real life, but I don't really think that's John's point at all. The problem when you go down that road of the approach is that Jesus is turned into uh, a great example of what can be achieved through human effort and willpower. Or sometimes to use our Christian speak, if you have enough faith, this is what you can accomplish. The other problem I think I have with that is that I I find if I go down that approach, I'm a little too quick to identify with Jesus in the story. The more I read it, the more I understand the story. I I think I'm probably one of the crowd shouting for Jesus' death or one of the soldiers beating him up. I think John's got a much bigger story to tell you. Okay. So the last thing that happens to Jesus in this story is that he's led away to be crucified. He goes to the cross as the last faithful Israelite, I guess the only faithful Israelite. And that's exactly what John wants us to see. He wants us to see his disciples have abandoned him. The crowds at once followed him to hear his teachings and now the ones calling for his death. 
The Jewish leaders have rejected him. The justice system has failed him. Interesting that he's been dragged before Pilate with the charge of treason. This means that he's claiming a title reserved only for Caesar. He's challenging Caesar's power and authority. And, and in the ancient world, there was really little mercy for people who did that. They were either uh, mercilessly and brutally killed and, and often crucified as well for, for even suggesting such a thing. But here's the irony. The true and rightful king of the world, the Lord of the universe here, he's standing in the dock. He's the one who's sentenced and and accused of crimes he didn't commit. He's innocent yet condemned. The one to whom even Caesar must bow is the one suffering the highest charge of treason that you'll ever see. He's the ultimate victim of injustice here. Here are Jesus' own flesh and blood, his own people. More broadly, I think what John's trying to show us is his own creation rebelling against him. The word made flesh, the one who was with God at creation, the one through whom The world was made. This whole created order that God has made is an utter rebellion against him. This is really what the greatest treason of all. And when you boil it down, that's what sin is. Sin is ultimately divine treason. It's a refusal to submit to the lordship of Jesus. It's a statement to God, we don't want to live under his rule. We want to go it alone. We want to be kings in our own right. What were the serpent's words to Eve that really sent her over the edge and convinced her? It wasn't that the fruit looks good. It's not that God's withholding you, but you will be like God. All sin is ultimately divine treason. Why do we care? Well, look, if Jesus was a king like Caesar, we would expect him to ruthlessly and mercilessly crush all dissent. Anyone who opposed him, we would expect him to punish with severity, with the severity of Caesar. This is how we should expect him to act. And you know, if with the, the Passover story looming large in the background here, where's the fire and brimstone raining down from heaven like it did on Egypt? Where are the plagues of frogs and locusts? Where are the hailstorms? Why isn't God pouring out his wrath against evil on the world here? And this is John's point. This is what's so strange about the story. When evil rears its ugly head in every direction, when human rebellion and divine treason reaches its crescendo, the punishment for that evil falls on Jesus. When God had every right to turn and pour out his wrath against the world for its treason, Jesus stood in our place taking the punishment we deserve. And John's point is that this is not a story about you and me. This is not a story about us and how we need to be like Jesus. This is a story about God. And more than that, it's a story about what it means for God to actually be God. We don't need to be like Jesus, and that's not the point of the story. As important as it is for us to be like Jesus, it's not the point. Jesus is so unlike us. It's the point of the story, because in Jesus, we see most clearly what it means to be God. I couldn't read the story without thinking of, of um, that passage in Isaiah. Where it says, here's my servant whom I uphold, the chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit in him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shy, shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break 
A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not stumble nor be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. Here we see Jesus who doesn't strike back when the soldiers strike him. He doesn't fight to defend his honor when questioned by Pilate. He doesn't rally troops to rescue him when he's arrested. He's totally alone. He's abandoned by all. The true and rightful king suffered the highest treason of all, yet he still goes to the cross for us. Not because of some accident in God's plan, not because Jesus was a failure, not because God's actually bent on punishing someone for sin, but it's because of who God is that Jesus goes to the cross. Because in Jesus, we see exactly what it means for God to be God. God is a God who will put this world to rights, who will wipe away every tear, take away all evil and all suffering, not because he's obligated to, but because of who he is. God owes us nothing. We are the ones who've racked up an unpayable debt against him. We owe God our allegiance and our obedience, but we've given him nothing but rebellion. We've shaken our fist in his face and said no. Yet in Jesus, we see here that God is a God of love, a God of grace. He doesn't inflict on us the punishment due for our sin, our complicity with evil and our rebellion. Even more amazing, Jesus takes on the punishment we deserve into himself. That's who God is. This is not an accident. It's who God is. No one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down only to take it up again. God is a God who has gone to amazing depths to rescue and save us. He has a love for us that we will never fully comprehend. It's who he is. God is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The very love, the very mercy, the grace, the faithfulness of God, the glory and majesty of God is on display here in Jesus before Pilate. This is who God is. Where is God when Christians are being hunted and murdered in Iraq and around the world? Where is God when I get test results back from the doctor that are horrifying? Where is God when my spouse leaves me, when I lose my job? Where is God when there is poverty, when there are wars, when there is suffering and evil around the globe? How can a good God allow such things to happen? I know God's not the cause of those things, but in his wisdom, I don't know why he allows them. I know that evil has been defeated and one day will be finally eradicated. But I know that for now it remains a power that seeks to undermine and oppose the good work of God in the world. I grieve with those who suffer. And today I don't want to trivialize anything you may be going through. But I find so often we forget that God has already answered our heart's deepest cry. He has given us his son, Jesus. Because it's through Jesus that God's putting this world to rights through his suffering and death that God will bring new creation to a fallen world. So often we fail to understand that Jesus before Pilate and Jesus on the cross is actually the ultimate act of love. It's the ultimate act of grace. Greater love has no man known than this than to lay down his life for his friends. This is the ultimate self-disclosure of who God is. It tells us exactly who he is and exactly what he's like. In Jesus, God has come down to us. He has met us where we are. He has lifted us to new life. God holds each and every one of us in the palm of his hand. 
and he will never, ever let us go. Nothing will ever snatch us out of the palm of his hand. God can never let go of you. He can never stop loving you. He never will because of who he is. If God were to stop loving you, if God were to let you go, if God were to drop you out of his hand, it would deny who he is. This is who God is. In Jesus, we see most clearly what does it mean for God to be God. C.S. Lewis wrote a book uh, many years ago called A Grief Observed. And it's, a, it's an interesting book to read. It's more like his personal journal, which I, if you feel a bit awkward reading it at times, it's really raw, it's really honest. Um, it's really insightful as well. Um, he talks about um, losing his wife shortly after they were married. He married later in life, uh, a few years afterwards she died. And he's, it's really perceptive. There's some comments in there, he says, and he writes about the apathy and boredom that comes with grief. He says, before you're grieving, you, you've got no time. You're always running out of time. As soon as a major event or a tragedy happens or you're grieving, it's like you've just got so much time. You've just got an abundance of it. And he said, you know, during that time, he really spent a lot of time thinking about his relationship with God. His fear was that not, he, not that he would find out God doesn't exist, that this whole thing's just a joke, um, but rather that through his grief, he'd actually find out who God is. He'd come most clearly face to face with what it means to, for God to be God. And he starts thinking, you know, well, is God really just some cosmic bully in the sky? Is he the most vile character in all of fiction, according to Richard Dawkins? Is he, is he just a kid in the sky with a magnifying glass and we're the ants down here? Is that who God really is? And, uh, you know, if you stop there in the book, and it's quite, you know, it's not an easy book to read. If you stop there, you'd think he's given up and gone back and said, you know, God, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't, I don't care. I've given up on this thing. But if you read to the end, you find his faith in God renewed. And the first time I read it, I, I kind of got to the end and I thought, oh, did I miss something? I don't really know. What changed? What really changed for him? Because he doesn't come out and say it. And that's, I guess, typical of C.S. Lewis. You read it again, you'll see there's a point in the story where he, his thoughts turn to Jesus. He starts meditating on the cross. And it's, it's like then you see that his, his grief just lifts at that point. All that hurt and pain he'd been carrying around just lifts because... You know, that was where he finally saw that Jesus was the one who'd suffered in his place, who'd taken all his pain and suffering onto himself. More than that, that was where C.S. Lewis saw exactly what it meant for God to be God and exactly who God is. God isn't some distant and uncaring man in the sky. He's not a bully and he's not some reckless, capricious monster. And Jesus, C.S. Lewis saw most clearly that God had gone to amazing depths to rescue this world, to rescue him. He's the God who has given himself for his creation. He's the God who took on all evil and the punishment for that evil on himself. And ultimately, C.S. Lewis came to a point where he had to say, my faith in God has become a house of cards. Not that he believed God didn't exist, but rather that he'd start to make God in his own image. And God had to use his grief to knock that image down. It was a uh, rather strange thing that happened to me as I was preparing this message. I'm kind of a little bit ashamed to admit it, but when I, when I was reading the story and preparing and, and just looking at the characters, I started to feel a small sense of superiority, just a small one. 
um, I started to feel like, oh, these guys are, are idiots. I'm a lot better than them. And I started, you know, when praying through it, I said, you know, Lord, even if, even if these guys did that to you, I'd be the one in the crowd saying something different. I'd, I'd fight, I'd defend, I'd say, this is crazy. We have to stop this injustice. This isn't right. Never mind the apostle Peter probably said the same thing to Jesus. Oh, even if everyone else does this, Lord, I'll follow you. Peter, not before the crow, cockle crow, three times you will deny me. All right, so it was a very short-lived feeling of superiority. I very quickly, quickly cut down to size uh, because I realized that while I'm judging them for this, I'm really no better than them. I probably would have been going along with the crowd doing exactly what they did. That's really John's point. That's why Jesus goes to the cross as the last faithful Israelite. The world itself has revealed itself to be utterly sinful. There's no one righteous, no, not one. It's only Jesus who goes to the cross as the righteous one. There's nothing wrong with good judgment if it's rooted in love and you're trying to protect and help someone else and, and, and judge in a situation there. But I found I was judging these guys in the story and then probably in other situations in life just to make myself feel better about who I am and then to make myself feel like I've got it all together. When I do that, you know, I'm, I realize I'm not only taking God's grace for granted, but I'm, I'm also failing to see who God is most clearly. I started thinking and I thought, you know, I'm, at times I'm more comfortable with a God who helps those who help themselves. That's the God I feel a lot more comfortable sometimes with. The God who gives you what you deserve, what you've worked for. I feel more comfortable at times with a God like that because that's a God I can understand and that's a God I can control. In many ways, that God is more like a giant ATM in the sky than anything else. But the thing is, when I look at Jesus in the story, I see a God I don't understand. I see a God I can't control because here's a God who goes out and willingly gives himself for people who don't want anything to do with him. Here's a God who willingly suffers and suffers the ultimate treason and rejection and hatred, persecution, all so that we could be made new. I don't see myself doing that. That's a God I don't understand. If anyone had a right to feel superior to anyone else, it was Jesus, only man on earth to have ever lived a sinless life who should have by our reasoning, expected a life of riches and comfort and peace and security. Yet as Paul says in Philippians, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It is not an accident that God did that. It's not an accident that Jesus did that. But because of who he is, the very heart and character of God are in display here in this weakness of Jesus before Pilate. It is who God is. It is because of who he is that he does this for us. That's a God I don't understand. That is a God I cannot control. Bono, the um, singer of U2, summed it up this way in a conversation with a journalist called Mika Assayas. He says, uh, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company for real relationship with people. I feel like I should be reading that in an Irish accent. I'm sorry, I just won't ruin it. Um, but the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. I believe we've been moved out of a realm of karma and into one of grace. At the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know what, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or every equal but opposite act, every action is met by an equal but opposite reaction in the religion of science, I guess. 
Um, it's clear to me that karma is at the heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all that reap as so you reap, you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason, it defies logic. Love, if you like, interrupts the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. That doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I am holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my religiosity. You may not agree with everything he says there, but isn't that a wonderful summation of grace? You do not have to depend on your own religiosity. Friends, has your relationship with God become distorted through a false image of God? Do you see God as some angry referee on the sideline? A coach who's always disappointed with your performance, always demanding you give him more in order to win his love and approval. That's not who God is. Friends, that is not who God is. That it couldn't be further from the truth. That is a lie perpetuated by the devil, designed to keep you enslaved to feelings of guilt and condemnation. We don't have to be good enough. I know I'm not good enough. Why? It's the first condition of my salvation. I'm not good enough. Getting up and standing and saying that in the office will probably get people to look at you funny. They might have to say, well, you might get someone else to do your job. But Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher, has said, if any man thinks you're bad, don't get angry with him. You're infinitely worse than he thinks you are. <laughs> That's the point. I'm never going to measure up. I'm not good enough. Jesus is good enough. Thank the Lord. Praise the Lord that Jesus is good enough that I do not have to depend on my own religiosity. Jesus has fought the battle. He's the rock on which you stand, not the shifting sand and tide of your own abilities and accomplishments. The more I focus on Jesus, the more trivial my accomplishments and, and abilities seem. Not that they're not important or God-given or to be used for God's purposes, but they pale in comparison to Christ. And as Paul says, whatever gains there were to me before, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. And in, in many cases, he says, rubbish. I consider them rubbish, refuse, waste for the sake of knowing Christ. Turn your eyes on Jesus, look full on his wonderful face. The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Is God only God if he pours out material blessings to you? Financial security, health, wealth, prosperity. Is he still God if he doesn't give you those things? Friends in Jesus, God has given us the ultimate gift. He's given us himself. He can give us no more than that. He's the prize. He's that pearl of great price. Seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added unto you. You can't seek after God's kingdom without seeking after his heart. You can't seek after God's heart without following Jesus. The more you follow Jesus, the less these things seem to matter. God, Jesus is the ultimate self-disclosure of God. He's the one who points us to all truth. He's the way. He's the truth and the life. Now, as we look to Jesus, may God give us the eyes to see his wisdom and power at work in the world through all these moments of weakness. May God open our eyes and reveal his heart and character to us afresh 
through his son Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we pray with the churches that have gone before us. We pray with the apostles that have gone before us. Through people of whom the world was not worthy. May the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know him better. May our eyes, may the eyes of our heart be turned to Jesus so that we may know the hope to which he has called us. I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that us being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Lord, we thank you for your son, for his sacrifice on the cross, that, Lord, we do not have to be good enough, that it is the first condition of us accepting your salvation, that we must admit that you are God and we are not. We thank you that because of who you are, not because of any obligation you had towards us, but simply because you are a God who loves us, a God of grace and a God of mercy, that you have poured out your love on this world in your son Jesus on the cross, that you have taken all hurt, all suffering and all pain onto yourself, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we look forward to the day when all evil will be eradicated and we will live with you in paradise, when heaven will come to earth, when your glory will flood the earth as the waters cover the sea. Lord, we look forward to that day and we seek to live with the light of eternity and to bring that into the present. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth and in our lives. We thank you again for your grace and mercy and we are hallowed by your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.